Section 12 of Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Ferreira. Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World by Anonymous. Section 12. German Women. Of all the German females, the ladies of Saxony are the most amiable. Their persons are so superiorly charming and preferable in whatever can recommend them to be notice of mankind, that the German youth often visit Saxony in quest of companions for life. Exclusive of their beauty and comeliness of appearance, they are brought up in a knowledge of all those arts, both useful and ornamental, which are so brilliant in addition to their native attractions. But what chiefly enhances their value and gives it reality and duration is a sweetness of temper and festivity of disposition that never fail to endear them on a very slight acquaintance. To crown all, they are generally patterns of conjugal tenderness and fidelity. As they are commonly careful to improve their minds by reading and instructive conversation, they have no small share of facetiousness and ingenuity. From their innate liveliness they are extremely addicted to all the gay kind of amusements. They excel in the allurements of dress and decoration, and are in general skillful in music. The character, however, of the women in most other parts of Germany, particularly of the Austrian, is very different from this. Notwithstanding the advantages of size and make, their looks and features, though not unsightly, betray a vacancy of that life and spirit, without which beauty is uninteresting, and, like a mere picture, becomes utterly void of that indication of sensibility, which alone can awaken a delicacy of feeling. As their education is conducted by the rules of the grossest superstition, and they are taught little else than set forms of devotion, they arrive to the years of maturity, uninstructed in the use of reason, and usually continue profoundly ignorant the remainder of their days, which are spent, or rather loitered away, in apathy and indolence. The principal happiness of the Austrian ladies of fashion consists in ruminating on the dignity of their birth and families, the antiquity of their race, the rank they hold, the respect attached to it, and the prerogatives they enjoy over the inferior classes, whom they treat with the utmost superciliousness, and hold in the most unreasonable contempt. In the meantime, their domestic affairs are condemned to the most unaccountable neglect. They dwell at home, careless of what passes there, and suffer disorder and confusion to prevail, without feeling the least uneasiness. Great frequenters of churches, their piety consists in the strictest conformity to all the externals of religion. They profess the most boundless belief in all the silly legends with which their treatises of devotion are filled, and these are the only books they ever read. The coldness of their constitution occasions a species of regulated gallantry, which is rather the effect of an opinion that it is an appendage of high life than the result of their natural inclination. It must at the same time be allowed that the Austrian women are endowed with a great fund of sincerity and candor, and though too much on the reserve and prone to keep it an unnecessary distance, are yet capable of the truest attachment and always warm and zealous in the cause of those whom they have admitted to their friendship. Though the Germans are rather a dull and phlegmatic people, and not greatly enslaved by the warmer passions, yet at the court of Vienna they are much given to intrigue, and an amour is so far from being scandalous, that a woman gains credit by the rank of her gallant, and is reckoned silly and unfashionable, if she scrupulously adheres to the virtue of chastity. But such customs are more the customs of courts than of places less exposed to the temptation, and consequently less dissolute, and we are well assured that in Germany there are many women who do honor to humanity, not by chastity only, but also by a variety of other virtues. The ladies of the principal courts differ not much in their dress from the French and English. They are not, however, so excessively fond of paint as the former. At some courts they appear in rich furs, 
and all of them are loaded with jewels, if they can obtain them. The female part of the burghers' families, in many of the German towns, dress in a very different manner, and some of them inconceivably fantastic, as may be seen in many prints published in books of travels. But, in this respect, they are gradually reforming, and many of them make quite a different appearance in their dress from what they did thirty or forty years ago. The inhabitants of Vienna lived luxuriously, a great part of their time being spent in feasting and carousing. In winter, when the different branches of the Danube are frozen over, and the ground covered with snow, the ladies take their recreation in sledges of different shapes, such as griffins, tigers, swans, scallop-shells, etc. Here the lady sits, dressed in velvet-lined with rich furs, and adorned with laces and jewels, hanging on her head a velvet cap. The sledge is drawn by one horse, stag, or other creature, set off with plumes of feathers, ribbons, and bells. As this diversion is taken chiefly in the night-time, servants ride before the sledge with torches, and a gentleman standing on the sledge behind guides the horses. A VIEW OF MATRIMONY IN THREE DIFFERENT LIGHTS The marriage life is always an insipid, a vexatious, or a happy condition. The first is, when two people of no taste meet together, upon such a settlement as has been thought reasonable by parents and conveyancers, from an exact valuation of the land and cash of both parties. In this case, the young lady's person is no more regarded than the house and improvements in purchase of an estate, but she goes with her fortune rather than her fortune with her. These make up the crowd or vulgar of the rich, and fill up the lumber of the human race, without beneficence towards those below them, or respect toward those above them, and lead a despicable, independent, and useless life, without sense of the laws of kindness, good nature, mutual offices, and the elegant satisfactions which flow from reason and virtue. The vexatious life arises from a conjunction of two people of quick taste and resentment, put together for reasons well known to their friends, in which a special care is taken to avoid what they think the chief of evils, poverty, and ensure them riches with every evil besides. These good people live in a constant restraint before company, and when alone, revile each other's person and conduct. In company, they are in purgatory, when by themselves, in hell. The happy marriage is where two persons meet, and voluntarily make choice of each other without principally regarding or neglecting the circumstances of fortune or beauty. They may still love in spite of adversity or sickness. The former we may in some measure defend ourselves from. The other is the common lot of humanity. Love has nothing to do with riches or state. Solitude, with the person beloved, has a pleasure, even in a woman's mind, beyond show or pomp. Betrothing in Marriage At a very early period, families who lived in a friendly manner fell upon a method of securing their children to each other by what is called in the sacred writings, betrothing. This was agreeing on a price to be paid for the bride, the time when it should be paid, and when she should be delivered into the hands of her husband. There were, according to the Talmudists, three ways of betrothing. The first, by a written contract. The second, by a verbal agreement, accompanied with a piece of money and the third by the parties coming together and living as husband and wife, which might as properly be called marriage as betrothing. The written contract was in the following manner. On such a day, month, year, A, the son of B, has said to D, the daughter of E, Be thou my spouse, according to the law of Moses and of the Israelites, and I give thee as a dowry the sum of two hundred sisms, as is ordered by our law and the said D hath promised to be his spouse upon the conditions aforesaid, which the said A doth promise to perform on the day of marriage. And to this the said A doth hereby bind himself and all that he hath to the very cloak upon his back, 
engages himself to love, honor, feed, clothe, and protect her, and to perform all that is generally implied in contracts of marriage in favor of the Israelitish wives. The verbal agreement was made in the presence of a sufficient number of witnesses, by the man saying to the woman, Take this money as a pledge that at such a time I will take thee to be my wife. A woman who was thus betrothed or bargained for was almost in every respect by the law considered as already married. Before the legislation of Moses, marriages among the Jews, say the rabbis, were agreed on by the parents and relations of both sides. When this was done, the bridegroom was introduced to his bride. Presents were mutually exchanged, the contract signed before witnesses, and the bride, having remained some time with her relations, was sent away to the habitation of her husband, in the night with singing, dancing, and the sound of musical instruments. By the institution of Moses, the rabbis tell us the contract of marriage was read in the presence of, and signed by, at least ten witnesses, who were free and of age. The bride, who had taken care to bathe herself the night before, appeared in all her splendor, but veiled, in imitation of Rebecca, who veiled herself when she came in sight of Isaac. She was then given to the bridegroom by her parents, in words to this purpose, Take her according to the law of Moses. And he received her by saying, I take her according to that law. Some blessings were then pronounced on the young couple, both by the parents and the rest of the company. The blessings or prayers generally run in this style. Blessed art thou, O Lord of heaven and earth, who has created man in thine own likeness, and hast appointed woman to be his partner and companion. Blessed art thou who fillest Zion with joy for the multitude of her children. Blessed art thou who sendeth gladness to the bridegroom and his bride, who hast ordained for them love, joy, tenderness, peace, and mutual affection. Be pleased to bless not only this couple, but Judah and Jerusalem, with songs of joy, and praise for the joy that thou givest them by the multitudes of their sons and of their daughters. After the virgins had sung a marriage song, the company partook of a repast, the most magnificent the parties could afford, after which they began a dance, the men round the bridegroom, the women round the bride. They pretended that this dance was of divine institution, and an essential part of the ceremony. The bride was then carried to the nuptial bed, and the bridegroom left with her. The company again returning to their feasting and rejoicing, and the rabbis inform us that this feasting, when the bride was a widow, lasted only three days, but seven if she was a virgin. At the birth of a son, the father planted a cedar, and at that of a daughter he planted a pine. Of these trees the nuptial bed was consecrated, when the parties, at whose birth they were planted, entered into the married state. The Assyrians had a court, or tribunal, whose only business was to dispose of young women in marriage, and see the laws of that union properly executed. What these laws were, or how the execution of them was enforced, are circumstances that have not been handed down to us. But the erecting a court solely for the purpose of taking cognizance of them suggests an idea that they were many and various. Among the Greeks, the multiplicity of male and female deities who were concerned in the affairs of love made the invocations and sacrifices on a matrimonial occasion a very tedious affair. Fortunate omens gave great joy, and the most fortunate of all others was a pair of turtles seen in the air, as those birds were reckoned the truest emblems of conjugal love and fidelity. If, however, one of them was seen alone, it infallibly denoted separation, and all the ills attending an unhappy marriage. On the wedding day, the bride and bridegroom were richly dressed, and adorned with garlands of herbs and flowers. The bride was conducted in the evening to the house of her husband in a chariot, seated between her husband and one of his relations. When she alighted from the chariot, the axle-tree of it was burnt, to show that there was no method for her to return back. As soon as the young couple entered the house, 
figs and other fruits were thrown upon their heads to denote plenty, and a sumptuous entertainment was ready for them to partake of, to which all the relations on both sides were invited. The bride was lighted to bed by a number of torches, according to her quality, and the company returned in the morning to salute the new married couple, and to sing epithalamia at the door of their bedchamber. Epithalamia were marriage songs, anciently sung in praise of the bride or bridegroom, wishing them happiness, prosperity, and a numerous issue. Among the Romans there were three different kinds of marriage. The ceremony of the first consisted in the young couple eating a cake together, made only of wheat, salt, and water. The second kind was celebrated by the parties solemnly pledging their faith to each other, by giving and receiving a piece of money. This was the most common way of marrying among the Romans. It continued in use even after they became Christians. When writings were introduced to testify that a man and a woman had become husband and wife, and also that the husband had settled a dower upon his wife, these writings were called tabulae dotalis, dowry tablets, and hence, perhaps, the words in our marriage ceremony, I thee endow. The third kind of marriage was when a man and woman, having cohabitated for some time and had children, found it expedient to continue together. In this case, if they made up the matter between themselves, it became a valid marriage, and the children were considered as legitimate. Something similar to this is the present custom in Scotland. There, if a man live with and have children by a woman, though he do not marry her till he be upon his deathbed, all the children are thereby legitimated, and become entitled to the honors and estates of their father. The case is the same in Holland and some parts of Germany, with this difference only, that all the children to be legitimated must appear with the father and mother in church at the ceremony of their marriage. End of section 12